Well, thank you, praise team, for leading us today in our singing and church. Uh, wonderful, wonderful, and excellent singing. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1, if you will. Uh, before we begin the sermon this morning, there are uh, several things that I just want to update you on. The first thing I want to say is thank you uh, to you, church, for allowing our, time, our family time away this past week uh, before in Colorado. We had a great time. And along with that, thank you to Tim, Pastor Tim, for preaching, uh, which ended up being two weeks in a row. You know, when we started this entire process over the summer, I had scheduled Tim to preach once per month through the summer months. And then when we learned that my, my, radi- my chemo was ending early and that the radiation would start and stop and allow us some time away, we went ahead and scheduled a, uh, a vacation in Colorado for our family. And that put Tim on for two weeks in a row. Grateful for your ministry here, Tim, and excellent encouragement through the word of God. I told Amy in the car yesterday I was excited to get back in the pulpit because it's been two weeks before, since I've been able to preach. Uh, third, I just want to give you a brief update on our renovation. Uh, the bride's room is complete this week. Uh, those who are, uh, had the, the ladies in the church who have been part of this process are going to be uh, putting the furniture in there, I believe, and the bride's room will be complete. We are hoping and expecting that the parlor will be completed by the end of the month, but it, they're making great progress on it, and it is looking good. Another uh, quick update I want to give you is that the church council has discussed our worship service plan. Now, when we move to one service at the uh, recommendation of the personnel committee and the church council, it was communicated that we would reassess here that would happen at least through the end of the summer. So uh, after we met just recently, the church council has decided that it's worth continuing with one service for the foreseeable future as I have two surgeries upcoming here in the next several months. Now on a side note, I've heard so many of you say, well, wish we could just stay in one service indefinitely, just keep going with that. And I agree, it's a wonderful thing to worship all together in one service. And you have been very gracious when it came to the rotation and it came to the overflow rooms and I want you to know I'm grateful and thankful for that. However, with our current numbers, it's just, uh, we can't continue with just one service, even though we're doing that for a short period of time again. Uh, you need to know that starting next week, we're going to have the overflow rooms back again. And I know Tim's going to be working on a rotational basis uh, for Sunday school classes as we expect an uptick even more with numbers as the summer months are coming to an end and school is beginning. And finally, I want to give you an update on our children's director search. Our team continues to meet and to pray through and discuss options. And I just need to be honest with you. We have received very few resumes from qualified individuals for our full-time position. And of the individuals that we have received resumes from, several of those candidates have decided to pursue other things, and we have decided against several candidates. And this reality has caused our team to really depend on the Lord and seek the Lord and continue to pray uh, as to what direction we should take. In light of that, the committee is actually very excited about an individual with whom we are currently speaking as we consider how to best meet the needs of our children's ministry in the future. Please continue to pray for this team and what that position may look like in the future 
And we do hope to be able to bring some great news in a short period of time. So with that, again, please turn your attention to 2 Samuel and chapter 1. You know, it seems like there is no end to the stupidity of some criminals. I read an account earlier this year of two thieves who stole several gaming systems from a retail store in Gwinnett County, Georgia. Unfortunately for them, they forgot to charge up their Tesla and they were caught at a charging station not far from the scene of the crime. In New Jersey, another guy went to a dealership and took a 2023 Chevy truck for a, quote, test drive. Well, he was caught eight hours later at a casino only 40 miles away from the dealership that he tried to steal the vehicle from. Another guy in Florida walked into a gas station around 2 a.m. one morning and stole several lottery tickets when the attendant there wasn't paying attention. A few hours later, he came back to the same gas station and tried to cash in his $30 winning ticket where he was promptly arrested. The saying that crime doesn't pay certainly fits when it comes to such criminals. The saying itself originated during the Victoria era and of course was intended to promote morals and work ethic. Now the essence of the quote is that the negative consequences of crime far outweigh the potential gains. And from an ethical standpoint, we understand that and we fully agree. However, as every criminal knows, sometimes crime does pay. And that's why there's so much crime in our world. Consider how we have uh, in our world, in our justice system, people turning blind eyes to all sorts of acts of crime that are out there. I've seen reports of authorities turning blind eye to shoplifting and tax fraud and to perjury. And while we know that there is coming a day of reckoning, the injustices that characterize our day is discouraging. Earlier this summer, we finished our study in 1 Samuel. And when we left off, the Philistines were about to war with Israel. And you remember that David was going to go to battle with the Philistines to fight against his own people. But the commanders of the Philistines, the lords of the Philistines, went to the king of Gath, Asich, and just said, no, we don't trust this guy. He can't fight with us. And it turns out that they was, David was sent away. And when he and his 600 men went back to Ziklag, where they were staying for the previous year and a half, they found that the city had been burned and that his wives, the wives of all these people, and their children had been kidnapped. So while David would not be fighting against his people, the Israelites, that day, he was going to engage in battle to rescue his people. Meanwhile, on Mount Gilboa, the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. Saul was badly wounded by the archers, and seeing that his end was near, he went to his armor bearer and asked his armor bearer to thrust his own sword through him so that he would be saved the mistreatment of the enemies. Well, the armor bearer wouldn't obey Saul because he was greatly afraid to do such a thing to the king, to God's anointed at the time. Instead, the narrator tells us that Saul took his own sword and fell upon it, and thus he died. A lot happens in those final chapters of 1 Samuel, and as we continue in 2 Samuel, the story picks up right where it left off. This morning, we're going to see some principles for kingdom 
living. And what is going to become clear is that crime doesn't pay. So let's stand as we read together in God's word. 2 Samuel, we'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 16. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp and his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan and his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we are looking to your word today, really what we are wanting is your spirit to move in this room and to move in our lives we're praying together right now that you would teach us through your word and that in teaching us, you would change us, that we would be people who are seeking after you and living according to the principles of the kingdom that we see evident here in the text today. So God, move in this place, have freedom in our own lives, change us. Help us to see Jesus Christ the anointed Messiah, the one in whom we have life. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, I can imagine that much was going through David's mind. He had just battled the Amalekites. He had just re rescued the kidnapped people. And he returned to a place that had been his home for the previous year and a half. But seeing that it was now burned the city where he lived was burned. David must have been thinking about how and perhaps where he was to start over. And I'm sure that David was curious as to how the battle was going between the Philistines and his own people, the Israelites. How was the battle going? It had been nearly a week now since King Achish, or the Achish, the king of Gath, had sent him home. Well, David was about to find out. We're told here in the text that on the third day after the death of Saul that 
David returned to Ziklag and along comes the disheveled looking man, torn clothes and a dirty appearance and immediately anyone who was looking at this man would have understood that he had taken the posture of someone who was in mourning, someone who was showing sorrow. So he approaches David and he falls to the floor and he bows down before him as to pay him homage. So what this tells us is that he kind of understood the big picture of what was taking place in Israel. He says that he was a son of an Amalekite, he was a sojourner, but he had been living there in Israel for some time now and he understood kind of the direction that everything was going. And this leads to an obvious question as David says to him, who are you? Where did you come from? And the man says that he had escaped the camp of Israel and he was coming home from the battlefield. So how did it go? What happened? David had not heard what had transpired, what had taken place at this point in the war between the Philistines and the Israelites. So the unnamed man proceeds to inform him, inform him that things didn't go so well for the people of Israel. Many have died. Many have fled. And amongst those who had died included the king and his sons, but specifically his son, Jonathan. While David had no reason to doubt his report, he is curious as to how the man learned that the king was dead. And at that point, it's when the man tells David that he just happened to be in the area of the battle and that he saw the king leaning on his own spear. Again, you heard it read. He told David that the king called him over and asked him to kill him, to end his life because he was mortally wounded. And to prove that he was there, he went ahead and took the crown and the armlet from the king and then brought them to give to David. Now again, David had no reason to doubt the story that this Amalekite was telling him. He may have wondered how an Amalekite got so close to the camp of Israel. He may have wondered how it was just by chance that he was on Mount Gilboa at the time of Saul's death. But as far as he knew, this man was telling the truth. However, friends, because we know how King Saul died, because the narrator, the author, tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 31, we know that this man is not telling the truth. This Amalekite did not kill Saul. Listen to how Saul died again, 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 3 through 6. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that, saw that Saul had died, he fell upon his own sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Saul did ask someone to put him out of his misery, but the armor bearer was too afraid to do it. So Saul brought an end to his own life by falling on his own sword. And friends, what we see, even in this little snippet of information, is that we are to be people who are driven by truth. We are to be people who are driven by truth. 
What was the man, the Amalekite, doing there on Mount Gilboa? We don't know for sure. In verse 13, we learn that he was a son of a sojourner, right? So he had been living in Israel for a period of time. And even though he wasn't an Israelite, Israel was his home. But why was he there? Was he part of the army? Commentators speculate that the man was, whether the man was actually even fighting in the army for Israel or whether he was there simply to scavenge among the dead and just happened to come across the king in the right moment. And friends, we'll never know. But what seems undeniable is that this man made up this story and brought the crown and the armlet to David, hoping for some sort of reward. Perhaps he wanted a position of power in David's kingdom. Perhaps he conjured up a story just to put David in his debt. But what happens is just the opposite. Listen again to verses 14 through 16. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now listen, take a step back and see the tragedy of the whole thing. This Amalekite, this dishonest person was killed for a lie. He was killed because of what he said he did, even though he did not do what he said he did. And then take a further step back and just remember back to the beginning of King Saul or in in the early part of King Saul's reign, how God called him to go and to destroy the Amalekites. But instead of destroying the Amalekites in full, he plundered them. He allowed some to live and he kept the goods for himself and he did not obey God. Irony of ironies, friends, the Amalekite now comes and plunders the king. And he takes the crown and he takes the armlet away from the king, even though the Amalekites should have been destroyed at the command of God. And then now David has this Amalekite killed, something that Saul should have done years ago. And all for a lie. All for a lie. Saul was driven by dishonesty. The Amalekite here is driven by lies. But as God's people, we are supposed to be driven by truth. We are to be driven by truth. We are called to be children of light and not children of darkness. We're called to be people of truth. Why? Because our God is truth. We're called to move away from deceit. Why? Because Satan is the father of lies. We are to, we are to image God We are to move away from deceit. And actually, we're talking more about just lying in its conventional sense. We're talking about living with integrity and living without hypocrisy. Look, we might be able to fool others. Like, we can put on a good show for others. We we can try to manage our image externally, and we can try to look a certain way in the eyes of some, and that happens even in this room. It happens. But God knows He knows all things, and he sees clearly into our own hearts, into our own lives. In Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, 
Jesus' warning about the leaven of the Pharisees. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Friends, God knows. God sees. We are to be people who are driven by truth. I think back to Acts chapter 5 and the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They died because they lied to the Holy Spirit. They died because they sought to protect their own image in, in front of everyone else, but they lied to the Holy Spirit and were dishonest. God knows all things. He judges all things perfectly. In Romans chapter 2, verse 16, it's made clear that God sees, that God exposes, and that God judges even the secrets of the heart. Maybe right now, but certainly in the end. Friends, we are to be people who are driven by truth. But a second principle for kingdom living that we see in this text is that we are to express our grief to God. We are to express our grief to God. Verses 11 and 12 describe David's response to Jonathan and Saul's death. Now, from a literary standpoint, the mourning that is expressed here is at the center of the passage. Right? We have the arrival of the Amalekite, we have some conversation, we have David's grief, we have some more conversation, and then we have the exit through death of the Amalekite. It's kind of in the center, and in the Hebrew language, what lies at the center of what is called a chiastic formula gets a lot of importance, right? In fact, we didn't read this, but in chapter 17 verse, through verse 27, we have an entire lament that David wrote that he wanted proclaimed to all the people. A lament over the death of Saul and Jonathan very specifically and what, was that, what that meant for the people there. Now, months ago, I read a book on biblical lament by a guy named Mark Vrogop. It was called, it's called Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy. Vrogop argues or suggests that lament is a prayer of pain that leads to trust. And he points to multiple instances in scripture, so many of them are in the Psalms, that contain laments. Noting that a lament gives a person permission to vocalize pain as we move towards God in worship and in trust. Right? Expressing our grief is an important part of our being. It's an important part of who we are. We are emotional beings. And, and when we deny our pain an avenue, we deny our grief a healthy and appropriate outlet, only negative things happen. Now, we understand, friends, the fact is, no matter how strong any of us may think we are, we can only bottle up our emotions for so long because eventually they will come out. And too often when they come out after having been bottled up for a period of time, it's not pretty, right? Shake up a can of Coke or a bottle of Coke and when it finds release, it's everywhere. It's gonna be uncontrollable. Not everyone's emotional release looks like angry rage, but withdrawal or isolation or passive aggressive words and behaviors or self-hurt or depression and other destructive behaviors can be painful too. And that's why it's important for us to express our grief, 
our pain and our frustrations. In verses 11 and 12, let's just look at those again. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David is expressing his grief here. He's mourning for multiple reasons. He focused here on the good of Saul and lamented his passion. He and Jonathan, we know, were very close friends, so he was sad about that. The death, his death caused him much pain. They also grieved the loss of life in the kingdom of Israel. And also the, the tragedy and the chaos that would come as a result of these moments. David wrote this lament here, verses 17 through 27, and wanted it taught through all of Israel. Now listen, when we read this, if we're honest, it's probably hard for us to understand why David was so sad. We know that he didn't have a good relationship with Saul. We know that Saul had been trying to kill him for some time. How is it that David had so many good things to say about Saul, and why was he so sad that he died? But if we look at the big picture, friends, in his passing and in Israel's defeat, it meant that there would be chaos for the people of God. So when it comes down to it, friends, we have to ask the question, how is it that we can appropriately express our pain and grief to God? I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 13, if you will. Psalm chapter 13, it's about this many pages to the right, okay? So about that many pages. Psalm 13, David is writing. It's a psalm of lament. Let you see what he says. Some of you turned a little too far. Okay. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Notice that David isn't holding back what he feels. In some sense, David feels abandoned. He feels like he's about to die. He's pained. He's struggling. And he communicates that. But if that's all David did, he could be guilty of simply complaining or blaming God or just have a poor attitude. It's easy to express our grief in a sinful way, but that's not what David is doing here. First off, notice that David is praying. He's taking his pain to God. He's not just spewing his complaints to anyone who will listen. He's turning his eyes to the Lord because that's where his help comes from. That's a major step, friends. When we face disappointments, when we face difficulties, when we face what seems like hopeless situations in our lives, 
we need to bring those pains to the Lord. But secondly, see here that David remembers who the Lord is. He recalls that God is worthy of his trust. He recalls that God is full of steadfast love. He even admits that God has dealt bountifully with him. And that's a big, that's a big confession. Because think about the previous years of David's life on the run, hiding in caves, trying to avoid Saul's army who wanted to kill him. No, but God, you have dealt bountifully with me. One of the hardest things that we can struggle with in life is a sense of entitlement. We want things to go our way. We expect things to go our way. And then we can begin to deserve that we, or believe that we deserve better and that we should be kept from struggles. And friends, this is a dangerous line of thinking. God doesn't owe us anything. Yes, he is faithful to his promises, but any good thing that we have in life is a gift of God, a gift of his grace. When we consider all the hardships that David faced and we realize that he could still say that God has dealt bountifully with him, this tells us that David trusted in the one true and living God. Friends, learn from this. We need to express our grief and our pain to God while remembering who he is and what he has done for us in Christ. We need to look to him as the one who brings ultimate hope and restoration. Well, finally, we need to embrace a healthy fear of the Lord. So as we look at these principles for kingdom living, the last thing we see in this passage is that we are to embrace a healthy fear of the Lord. Now, the reason that David had the Amalekite killed is because he had no fear, but he struck down the Lord's anointed. Again, for us, this is a difficult concept because we know that God had rejected Saul at this time and that David was the anointed yet not ruling king yet. However, David's firm position, as we saw multiple times in 1 Samuel, is that he would not lift a finger against Saul even when he had opportunity to do so. The Amalekite here, don't miss this, the Amalekite here is contrasted with Saul's armor bearer. Saul said to his armor bearer, take your sword and thrust it through me. And the armor bearer was too afraid to do it. He would not do it. But the Amalekite claimed that when Saul said to him, kill me, he did. Why? Because he had no fear. He had no fear. Now, friends, when we consider the Lord's anointed, we need to ultimately look to the Messiah to Jesus Christ. Saul or David or any other Davidic kings were just placeholders pointing us to the one in whom we find the fulfillment of the promise of God, Jesus Christ. And the fear of the Lord ought to be a guide in our lives. Dale Ralph Davis, commentator, former pastor, suggests that the fear of the Lord ought to keep us moving in the right direction and keep us pure before the Lord. You know, I don't know if bowling is actually a sport or not, but one of the greatest inventions of the past probably 30 or 
35 years is those gutters that can come, or those bumpers that come up and block the gutters when you bowl, right? Like, that keeps the ball from going off track. And the fear of the Lord, friends, is kind of like these bumpers that keep your lives from going off track. When we live in the fear of the Lord, recognizing his majesty, recognizing his glory, recognizing that he is worthy and that he has called us to righteousness and that we are to live for him, then our lives can be driven in the right direction. The fear of the Lord will keep us moving in the right direction. Direction, But apart from the fear of the Lord, friends, our lives run the risk of falling into the gutter. Of the early church, Luke wrote that it experienced peace as they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 9. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul suggests that knowing the fear of the Lord encourages him, motivates him to persuade others. Essentially, friends, Without the fear of the Lord, we will not live a life that is pleasing to God. Now, the fear of the Lord isn't about worrying that when we mess up, God is going to smash us like a bug. It's not what it is. But it's about loving the Lord and desiring to please him. For those of us who have put our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, our standing with God is secure. Jesus took our punishment on the cross and freed us from the wrath of God as he rose from the dead. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But as followers of Jesus, we need to embrace this healthy fear of the Lord. While our standing is secure, too many professing Christians act like they are beyond the discipline of the Lord, living as if God has no authority in their lives. had a conversation with a some friends this, this, this week, actually, who talked about just the state of the church in America and how there is so much worldliness everywhere. And there are so many people who go to church on Sundays sometimes, but then just live incredibly sinful lives throughout the week. Friends, that is a lack of the fear of the Lord. And such a fear will aid us, friends, in our battle against sin and will help us in our pursuit of righteousness. So let's be people who fear the Lord. Let's be people who take his word seriously as we draw near to him. And let's not forget, he is the sovereign judge. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 makes it very clear that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Ultimately, friends, a life of crime does not pay especially when our crimes are against the most holy God. God will judge sinners. He will punish those who are not covered by the blood of Jesus. And if that's you this morning, friend, then I plead with you to hear this. There is life and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ through faith in his finished work on the cross and in the resurrection. But you've got to call out to him for forgiveness. And you have to place your trust in him. Apart from faith in Jesus, there is certain condemnation and judgment for your rebellion against him and his ways. But this morning, there can be life and there can be forgiveness. 
as we transition here to a time of invitation and surrender this morning, many in this room need to pray for grace to be driven by truth. There may be some who need to confess their sins and seek the cleansing of Jesus Christ as he promises to forgive us our sins as we seek after him. Perhaps there are some here who want to confess to God grief and pain and struggle in your life and ask him for help. Maybe you want to pray for others who you know are suffering, who are going through difficult times. If you want to know more about a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then I would encourage you to come find me or one of our staff members or talk to someone who you know to be a Christian before you leave this room today. We're available up front if you have any questions about anything you've heard today and most importantly about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for the completed work of Jesus Christ, how you have won the victory, how you have secured life for those who are in Christ, and how there is no condemnation, no wrath, because of the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. God, move in this room now, move in our church, help us to be people of truth who are living by the fear of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand as we sing?